OCO and Hawaii, welcome to Real Indigenous, where we look at everything on your screen and everything in between. Today, my co-hosts are... Angela Starts, Inupiaq. Sunrise Dibikani, Madhuweka. And we have a special guest today. We are quite honored to have... Colon Studi, Cherokee, and a person who's here now. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Well, Kalan, it's so great that um, that you're available to join us this evening. We thank you for coming on board and for just being down to discuss um, discuss some of your work and to discuss um, some of your family dynasty things. So, uh, what I'm curious about is uh, I'm curious about you know where we met in theater. We met doing theater. I think the first time uh, we actually did a piece together was. Um, during the pandemic, during the new adventures of Super Indian, uh, written by Arrigan Star, and um, this was this was a revisited script of that she had done uh, earlier. I think had it been like, oh, it was a, quite a while before, and you played the lead. You played um, the protagonist, and I wanted to ask you like about your experiences in in theater and in film and in voiceover like was that one of the first times you did voiceover work I imagine will you tell us a little bit about that experience of course um yeah that was that was my first time doing anything um or was it I think it was my second time starting to do anything voiceover related because I had done I think that the year before a couple of radio plays for new native theater because they had a um a series going there but that was the first time I was um a lead and I was so excited to get to play I mean a native superhero like you don't get to do that e ever <laughs> or at least like every day but yeah it was just it was so much fun and I, I just want to say that Candace was awesome in that project like she was so much fun <laughs> to a work with and like um my favorite part about that project was a the recording and just like the insane like talents we had in in the room because uh whenever whenever we were just like working on technical difficulties it would just break down into jokes and nonsense which was <laughs> which was very exciting and <laughs> especially since like what was that that must have been like march of 2021 was that what yeah it was Oof. like march of 2021 and I wonder what what was that experience? Are you were you in LA? You were in LA at that time recording. It was a trip because you know I, since we were all working from home, we all had to like set up our own you know like sound booths essentially, and I constructed mine out of green screens and blankets. For the listeners at home, you can't see this, but uh, everyone on Zoom can see that. Like kind of in the background, um, it should. I just set it up back there, and that's like maybe six feet behind me or so so it took up the space between my door and and my bed so it was like very much in the way of everything but so I would just kind of roll out of bed and just go in there for recordings and things like that but yeah it was it was just a really fun experience and it's such a a great piece of work because it's so inherently silly and I think that's something uh, we don't always get to do uh you know, when it comes to media, but it was also, it was just, it was just so much fun. But hitting on that, I wanted to talk a little bit about, will you tell us a little bit about your, your background, your training, your schooling, and how did you, how did you get into this? How did you get into the performing? It all began 
long time ago. Sorry. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really started when I was like really young. Um, I think I was like five or six, and my mom took me to a like children's theater production of um I can't remember the play. It definitely had a dragon. It was not Puff the Magic Dragon, because it would have been a very different show. But it basically like the lights went down. And uh, when they came back up, my mom turned to me and was like, so what did you think about that? And my response was, so when do I get to go do that? And uh, after that, I started, you know, doing like children's theater productions, uh, both in school and uh, at Southwest Children's Theater. And then after high school, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Los Angeles, uh, which I actually later found out that one of my friends, uh, Ernest Briggs, was there the year before I was. Like he graduated uh, the year before I came in. I was like, oh, I guess they have the one native policy. You'll get too rowdy if there are too many of us. Too many questions being asked. Yeah. And then after that, I got hooked up with uh, Native Voices at the Autry um, doing uh, readings for their new Playwrights Festival, where I got to work on stuff uh, from like Fear Starbird and uh, Frank uh, Kashkatas and uh, started doing uh, Fringe Festival out here in Los Angeles with uh, work that we had uh, as, an, as the Native Voices Ensemble put together. And yeah, since then, I've just been kind of trucking along in theater and, you know, was also like auditioning for various film and TV. And it was interesting because like even after I graduated in like 2015, like the work was very much what you would like expect, you know, because it was before like this boom and like new, like, uh, you know, indigenous led like storytelling on film and TV. So it was a lot of you know, like leathers and feathers stuff, as we like to call it. So um, I did my first main stage production for Native Voices in 2016, which was a, a Frank uh, Kashkatasi's play, They Don't Talk Back, where I got to play um, a 15-year-old Plingit boy, uh, which was a lot of fun. It's funny going back through everything since then. <laughs> um, then basically did a few another production for uh native voices which was bingo hall by dylan chitto which he's just a fantastic writer and he's such a such a sweet sweet guy um it was a lot of fun to get to do that play but basically i've just been uh lucky enough to work in like uh at least a theater production a year and things like that uh working with like mary Catherine nagel at one point on her play sovereignty up at uh, marin theater company uh, and the last uh, show that I was a part of that was a main stage production was I was an understudy for um, Between Two Knees at Yale Repertory, which was uh, a, a wild experience on its own. You've been active in theater for a while now. So what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the stories that are being told? You know, we we look at film and television mainly, but I feel like, and since Candace and I have worked together in theater too, that there's a lot more room, a lot more space for different kinds of stories on stage and in theater. And kind of what kind of stories are, are out there now versus the when you started? That is a great question. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really interesting because especially when... Um, I left college, 
I was super disenchanted by like the roles I'd been playing because, you know, you go to theater school and you do like the classics, like it's like, you know, like Shakespeare or like Neil Simon or, you know, David Mamet plays. And like, obviously, they're all shows that like center around, you know, white folks and like very white perspectives. And I I left being like, well, I have no idea who I am and what I'm going to do. <laughs> So that's why I was really grateful when I got um, when I started doing shows at Native Voices because you know it was the first time I was in a more like in a more indigenous led space than I'd ever been in as far as theater was concerned, and it was so cool to see these shows that were rooted in like modern times because um, the play that I did they don't talk back takes place you know in like the early nineties or so and even then it, it hadn't even like struck me that like that could even exist. And then, you know, I've since then uh, met like other playwrights, like Mary Catherine Nagel's pieces all have to do have like one foothold in the modern world and then a foothold in the past, which boy, those shows are trippy, but they're, uh, <laughs> they're a lot of fun to work on. Um, even when they're not, <laughs> who doesn't love really heavy subject matter? Um, and explaining it to white folks in a talk back afterwards. But <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like theaters have started kind of going the same way with like film and TV and maybe kind of started doing it in the same time where they really were trying more to be committed to like, you know, um, BIPOC stories and letting them be led by those kind of creatives. I think it's headed in the right direction, but obviously, you know, with a lot of that, there's unfortunately a very like, still a very Eurocentric um, viewpoint. Like some theaters are able to combat it better than others. Fun little tidbit. Um, when I was working on Sovereignty uh, at Marin Theater Company, which is a good company. I, I don't want to bash them at all. Uh, love you, Jason Menedakis. <laughs> but the show they had done before that um, was a show that was a, a romantic comedy between... Um, Thomas Jefferson and one of I I can't remember her name right now but like one of the yeah yeah I'm getting a lot of nods mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly Thomas Jefferson romantic comedy immediately you're just like oh like, no. We're like, no. <laughs> no 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 <laughs> I'm like mm. <laughs> it'd be, yeah immediately you're just like oh I'd rather not uh, <laughs> You, you hope that like theaters will come in with like good intention and things like that. And like, to me, it kind of seemed like a little bit of like a, a, a cleanup after the fact to me, like, cause like it was obviously mired with protests. Um, surprisingly, the, the black theater community in the Bay area wasn't stoked on the whole project. <laughs> but yeah, but I guess in answer to the whole question, I, I can, it's amazing to see that there is like this really cool traction that's like starting to happen. Larissa Fast Horse play Thanksgiving play, which obviously isn't like doesn't have um, indigenous folks in it, but also I, I think that's a victory in itself to have someone who could write a play. It's like, oh, I, <laughs> you, I don't have to. I it basically, she, it seemed like she did it on a dare to be like, oh, I can write something that isn't, you know, just full of native folks and then it got super popular which is mm -hmm. both so awesome and also like oof <laughs> but to mm -hmm. me it seems like the landscape is is changing for 
the better in that people are starting to realize how powerful these stories can be uh can be when they're actually like in the troll of like bipoc creatives and things like that six months ago i went to go see um slave play which was uh running here in los angeles and oh that is a wild show and i just i love being in a in a theater where like white people like openly cringe you know <laughs> love our white folks by the way i'm also Irish, Scottish, and like Ukrainian <laughs> descent. So <laughs> for all three of you who are listening, I... <laughs> <laughs> when those stories are uh, being able to be told in like BIPOC creators are more in control, they're they're that much more potent. And I think that's that's what theaters are starting to see. Unfortunately, most theaters are beholden to, uh, you know, they're like, predominantly uh white like season ticket holders and things like that so and while those folks are very open to being exposed to these kinds of things hopefully um there it's still weird to be doing these kinds of shows for like that audience you know because mm-hmm. like not everyone has access to see these shows especially when like they're like even a smaller like good theater they still run like 25 to sometimes like 50 dollar a ticket for like like a 500 seater or something like that and it's just it's absolutely um wild but i've seen the trend and i think that also might be because of just the circles that i've been running in recently but that's also very much um a choice uh because like you know th- there's plenty of you know <laughs> Eurocentric theater, I guess is a better way to put it, out there. But I, I do see that a lot of places are seeing like the talent that is out there and are really like actually starting to, you know, allow those spaces. And it's also it also I think it has to do with like the um creatives really, really taking the reins on their own. Cause I feel like it's always it's so hard because everyone has to toe the line of like this is how the game is played but i feel like certain folks are being like nah we're not going to do that anymore and they're just like oh well we really want to do this show so i think we'll just kind of i think we'll we'll we'll, yeah 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 yeah. you win you know that's that's the joy and the pain of live theater is you get that immediate response from your audiences and you know i've i've read the stories of between two knees and those audience oh. responses and i'm i haven't heard a lot about the sovereign responses so how talk a little bit about how that goes so <laughs> i can only speak to the sovereignty production that was in um marin theater county because there was one at uh uh center theater in washington but anyways i whew, our experience there was actually kind of intense because sovereignty obviously has to do um intensely with obviously the trail of tears which side note it was really cool to finally get to play a cherokee person like even though that was in the form of like elias Budnot, which like is a controversial character <laughs> but like who boy um but regardless that was really cool but so what had happened is um you know obviously we had a a white moderator for the first um talk back uh after the show and i think it was like after the first weekend we had opened and for those of you who aren't familiar with the show it's um about the trail of tears but also takes place in 2016 17 and also it very much has to do with like matters of like uh the violence against women's act and you know um variant and 
you know, tribal sovereignty when it comes to law enforcement, both on and off uh, what we consider reservations was obviously like very heavy subject matter. And what I think Mary Catherine Nagel is very good at doing is making um, legal jargon palatable for audiences, but still it's like a lot of very new concepts. So what happened one night is uh, I think it was like the, the first Thursday show, we had a talk back with, um, you know, a, a, a white moderator and most of the cast wasn't on stage because we we're like, we're tired. This show's draining. We're all going to just like do the theater thing and go for a drink <laughs> at the bar across the street. <laughs> and one of us had heard that, like, just the, the handling of the talk back was like how could this happen like how could someone go onto a reservation and like commit these heinous acts and then not be prosecuted and then the person in charge had a very like lightly nuanced answer of like well you know these things are complicated and uh and it's just like okay you don't really have experience in this so what ended up happening is there were at least like three or four of us from the native part of the cast would stay for the talkbacks so it was constantly like having to rehash like MMIW and like talking about like the dangers of man camps and like explaining all of this stuff over and over again, which which on its own was super draining. Uh, I because I remember one night that really really got to me because one of the scenes obviously takes place in a casino. I say obviously like that that has to be a part of every indigenous story. It was for my grandma anyways, but, you know, and of course, like one of the first questions that came out of this, I'm just going to say well-meaning uh, white person, <laughs> he he was like, well, how do you how do you feel about casinos like they're because they, they seem like kind of like inherently evil, like, you know, because they're just like taking money from, you know, self-respecting people and like, you know, tribal members and like there's also alcoholism and it's like. Cool, cool, yeah, but you also have to remember that this was, this is one of the only ways that, like, can pay for infrastructure, like, on, on reservations and things like that, because, you know, there's no, there's really nothing else, and it also supplies jobs, and, like, obviously, it's, it's, it's based in a vice, which is gambling, and also, obviously, they have to serve liquor, because that's also just another profit margin, but, like, it was just wild to me that people will view that in such like a black and white term and you know that that's just like what they've absorbed their entire lives as far as like what being a native person is because they also assume like <laughs> to, to, who, who here gets like those tribal checks and it's like i mean i don't so <laughs> it's it's it was just wild to me that this very um this very like liberal community in the bay area which is basically made up of like hippies who got really rich off of like land and like property and things like that and selling houses that they were just like so distanced from these concepts and you know it's it's not their fault but also it is when we live in like times like these real quickly about between two knees one of the reasons that was one of my favorite things because you know as an understudy you have to go to most of the shows and i did because i just love the show because it's so so in my wheelhouse of of insanely silly and then just emotional gut punches that I'm like, this is therapy for me. <laughs> that uh, My favorite thing would be sitting there and timing when people would get up to walk out. Like I would always gauge it. What? I think the earliest, yes. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I think the earliest one I think happened in the first scene 
which um <laughs> and it happened i remember specifically because it was like because one of the big bits in the first part of the show is the wheel of indian massacres which is like so morbid and funny <laughs> like somebody just got up and was like i don't want to listen to this and like <laughs> his wife just like got up and walked out and i was like we are 10 minutes in like we're not <laughs> you paid for these tickets and like you came in and left and i think the most i saw in one show and obviously that this isn't even counting um intermission or anything because obviously a few seats would be empty <laughs> once everybody got back but i think the most that i saw were like three separate couples in the first act the boarding school part also got to a lot of people because there's some very sexy nuns yeah reading the reviews between like the native reviewers and the non-native reviewers was pretty telling you know i i haven't certainly haven't seen the play but you could definitely tell the native audiences had quite a different takeaway than the non-native audiences <laughs> but i find that too like isn't that well uh, of all of us we, i think we've most of us have seen the 1491s probably in person right I feel like that was characteristic of, again, just it played the the binary between their effect, their impacts on audiences of the original 1491's comedy group. Um, like I went with an all native audience where they were, they were performing at Gilcrease, you know, and it was a sold out show and they knew people in the audience and they were riffing on people in the audience, you know, and it was so great. It like there was, we were all, dying laughing in our seats and I was sitting near Wilson Pipestem and they just dragged him and it was really great Wilson Pipestem is a, an attorney and lawyer and he's kind of famous in Indian country and that's why oh, yeah. they were dragging him and he's also happens to have very beautiful stylish hair so <laughs> so they were like dragging him you know for having this beautiful hair and oh yeah they, he had that he had that good hair huh <laughs> he has that good hair he's got that real good hair so that was like so we had this wonderful native, very positive, where they're riffing on their community members. But then I attended a show, same group, Guthrie Green, which is a lawn, you know, out in Tulsa. And that's where public performances take place, outdoor stage during the daytime. I don't know, during the daytime. Oof. And, you know, they're primarily, at that time, they were primarily a video, video comedy group. And that's how Sterling described themselves. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh they bombed so bad because the lawn was full of non-native families you know it was mainly mainly white families you know oh, no. and uh they just bombed so hard number one because the screen didn't work wasn't going to come down and they just oh. bombed so hard so me and my sister being fans like we went we just kind of sat near the stage and we were just like laughing just making <laughs> our laughs super louder than normal <laughs> I feel like, I feel like almost like we were heckling them or something, but, <laughs> but I think I'm wondering if it's gotta, it's gotta be them, of course. And I'm at, it sounds like you're have, having a similar thing with between two knees, <laughs> like, and you, when you finally got to like go on stage and embody, embody those things, like, could you notice too, like, were you still imagine for the run, you probably had that same effect on your audiences, right? Yeah, that part was wild because, you know, obviously it was a relatively short run. I think it was like three weeks. And then unfortunately, um, one of the players uh, got COVID. So I had to live in actors, an understudy's nightmare and step in for him 
audience reactions were about what I was like expecting because you could kind of feel the a the show moves so insanely quickly because it's really just like a series of skits because I mean it's very telling of like their writing style and things like that especially being you know essentially like a video comedy group or like a truly a sketch comedy group that um the story is just kind of like a uh, a byproduct of all of the all of the little vignettes but for me it was actually kind of a dream to get to work on this uh it just covered so much history that it's 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 truly kind of like just hard to describe because on the one hand it's like incredibly silly right like the first scene after after the whole uh wheel of indian massacres bit and like this uh intensely offensive and intentionally uh offensive dance routine the the first skit is like with me and uh whitco (laughs) and uh myself as a character named paleface who's just you know like a native dude who has bought into all of it and like they're you know um (laughs) talking about like circumcision and things like that so (laughs) and then it's like boom lights up we're at wounded knee so it was funny because like you knew I I started to feel out like where the the beats of the show where like the intensely comedic bits are um because oh there's the, the one of the one of the funniest things that happens in the show is like uh you know this injured woman comes on who is uh played by Sheila Towsey, who she is maybe one of the funniest people I have ever met or seen perform and i was just like this is what i want to be eventually but um there's this whole bit where like they just like she's sitting there and like telling us you got to take my kid you got to get him somewhere safe and then a, a stagehand walks on and takes her arm and it's just a long red ribbon of oh. like of, of blood <laughs> <laughs> it's just so silly and theatric and then she just delivers like oh i guess my wounds are worse than i thought <laughs> <laughs> just like this is this is perfection so you know you could get i think the the weirdest thing was feeling working on a show where you feel the groans and laughter being the same thing because it would be like you know the well-meaning white folks would be like oh no and then they're just like you know the native folks who are luckily in the audience sometimes or even like bipoc folks of any of any variety are just like ah that's hysterical (laughs) and But like the whole, it was wild because the show just bounces back in between. I, I think one of the cast members put it the best is that it's aggressively stupid and incredibly poignant where there's just like this intense silliness that surrounds the show that's just like vaudevillian type bits throughout the entire thing. And then, you know, it gets like in intensely real like one of my favorite speeches in the whole show which i think i still stand by um besides the larry monologues throughout the whole show is one of the best pieces of writing that the 1491s um have in the whole show where this character william who is a soldier in world war ii in the middle spotlight on him and he's just talking about being a soldier at that time and what it meant to be like representing his people and defending a country that doesn't want him and you know being so terrified that he he can't really hear his song his father's songs anymore mm-hmm. and he he literally like dies on stage and um what's beautiful is in in the show um spoilers 
is they they usually have a lift in the middle like it's the show is very much designed to uh to have a lift <clears throat> so what happens is like uh i a had blood packs which from night to night varying degree of working like sometimes it was like all the blood and sometimes it was like none one time <laughs> one time it was too much like they were like you got it on the stage i was like i am so sorry <laughs> but he uh william lays down uh on the dinner table and after this just beautiful scene where um his parents are transitioning from the young version of themselves to the older version and Wicco is singing uh singing a song and you know the last thing he does after the lift completely goes down with William on it is he like um you know drops some earth over him and it's just like this incredibly beautiful moment and you know then he it, the whole show was just truly wild <laughs> because you know as 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 a performer you never know how people are going to react to this kind of show especially you know when it is so so geared towards you know native folks and things like that which is beautiful like cuz it's really for them cuz it it's to me it's always the to me personally it's a quintessential translation of like indigenous humor in the idea that like you can joke about these horrendous horrific things but it's because that's how you process right it's either you laugh or cry and you know it was just so funny to also in the audience and then kind of like feel when like people just wouldn't respond to it and it would be mostly like white folks just because you know an interesting that also thing that happened there is while we were there somebody because you know where Yale uh New Haven is a very is a very strongly like white community within the the campus and things like that but then like it's surrounded by like truly just like very intense like levels of like poverty and like low income Mm -hmm. like families and things like that and so what happened is like the between two knees poster got actually tagged like through because there's you know uh, a man in a headdress on front and they just tagged it right through because like it, it was wild to be just reminded how there's still I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this feeling of like these certain kinds of folks who just get offended by the truth being told or just get offended that like there might be a different perspective than like what they had been told their entire lives. But also there's a ninja fight, you know, and that's that they're nun ninjas. So it's <laughs> for me, it was truly uh, a dream just because I got to do stage combat and do vaudeville bits and then get to deliver like truly intense lions i even had to do a rap in the show which was absolutely nuts it was all about aim truly it for me it was kind of a dream and just a waking nightmare of anxiety but um yeah but the the show itself was just so so wild and just having different people's reactions to it was was interesting so a lot of our listeners probably aren't familiar with the theater process and so maybe walk them through from first day rehearsals to rat, you know, to all of that. So it all begins with a theater, <laughs> but basically what, uh, first there's like an audition process, like you would do for like film and TV, 
um, where, you know, you go in uh, with sides prepared. And the weird thing about theater is it isn't always necessarily related to the project. Um, Cause sometimes you can bring in your own um, monologue and sometimes they'll ask like for comedic or and dramatic, which, you know, can vary. Um, and then once you're casted, you basically get a schedule that is about like, it, I feel like it gets tighter and tighter as the years go by with theater production. But like it, like if you're lucky, sometimes you have like five weeks of rehearsal where you're in there like six days a week for eight hours. Um, I've also experienced times where like you'll get like three weeks and things like that. So you basically rehearse for three weeks, which uh, first week is basically like just table reads where you sit with the entire cast and um, other creatives like uh, lighting, uh, the stage manager, the director, of course, because somebody has to lead this chaos and um, basically talk through the play. By the second week, you hope you are up on your feet doing blocking, which is, you know, the um, movements that you'll be doing throughout the show which includes like exits and entrances on either side and then by the last well the week before opening you'll be doing tech which is um everybody's least it's either I've, it's funny because people either love tech or hate tech because all it is is like standing around and getting the lighting right and like the cues right for sound and um it's just a, those are long days like uh, before these like new contracts like those would be like what are called 10 out of 12 days which you would be there for 10 hours just working on a script uh getting trying to get the everything right and those are whew, those are the longest days because you can you know deliver a line over and over again trying to trying to get like the right um just the right anything just like the right lighting the right sound cues that go with it especially uh with especially between two knees man watching that that process was insane because that it's all just so many <laughs> shocker because it's the 1491s and they're so like entrenched in like video and things like that that there are projections included uh as well as like intense sound cues so basically you go through tech and then usually about the following weekend you open and then for th three to four weeks sometimes two um you'll just do the show and that too is like you know depending on the theater is sometimes like six uh six days a week or you know five or just like the weekend but that also includes thursday so it could be extremely draining especially like considering if the show is like extremely physical or just emotionally draining. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really intense um, test of your, of a person's um, artistic endurance, I think. Cause you really have to be like taking care of yourself and not just like physically, but also very much like emotionally, especially depending on the subject matter. And then you close and then <laughs> this, intense bond that you have made with like your castmates and things like that goes away not entirely but like it just <laughs> it's just like everyone moves on like the, like the thing happened and we got to keep going <laughs> so you mentioned uh there are people who like tech and they don't like the tech week i'm curious where you sit in all that and if there's any uh, experience that's interesting for you in the process yeah 
<laughs> Take it or leave it. Yeah, I think because because like I I I personally definitely like find it fascinating to to watch something come together, but also sometimes just like oh man, I've been sitting here for like four hours and not haven't done a thing. Now, I remember one time. I think it, it was the first time I was in tech for a real show. Was they don't talk back, and it was a scene where uh, me and my uh, co-star Ramon Zaragoza were like having to pretend to be asleep and they were trying to get this one lighting cue for like this ocean wave that like goes over the stage and it's beautiful mm. and it's like the sound is incredible I fell asleep for half an hour like I full <laughs> on passed out on that couch <laughs> and I didn't realize what had happened until they're like all right I think we're gonna take a break here I was just like oh where what oh it's it's 10 and 30 I oh no <laughs> And it was, but so, and I think it's also funny because it, in a weird way, that's also where like you can kind of goof around as long as you're not being like too loud or disruptive to the creative team and things like that. But yeah, it's fine. It's a very important part of the process. But like, I remember I had a director who said, I, I hate lighting. I hate sound. I hate costumes. I hate all of it. <laughs> I'm just like, why do you do this then? <laughs> But yeah, tech is tech is great. So you mentioned earlier that you were you were happy that you could play your own indigenous identity. And I'm just curious if you could speak about that. I mean, like that's something that I think is not unique to us necessarily, but like to actors that have to work around a variety of different tribes, if there's like a thought process you go through, uh uh anything that you do in preparation for that, uh, things that you've learned as a result of that of other tribes. Because interestingly, being like a a native performer is, <laughs> it feels like we're, uh, I guess it's also kind of true for like other like BIPOC artists, but like, it's very rare that a native person gets to like, portray their own tribe. And like, obviously, like that has changed in, in like recent times. But mm -hmm. yeah, my entire experience up until and I think at that point, it was, you know, three years in of being a performer that um you because i had played uh i was Plinget, um i was laguna pueblo um so i think for me uh in in terms of preparing is i would really just like try to like talk to the writer or absorb anything that they said about like their culture and things like that and yeah just try to like pick up on all the subtleties and, and cues and try to like learn more i'm i'm also truthfully just like a, t a terrible student it's amazing that i got through <laughs> high school because i'm just like i just want to do the thing <laughs> <laughs> like let's go but like uh so yeah but i i tried to i i definitely tried to become a better student when it came to like really like listening to uh playwrights and things like that because it is like their culture and when it came to getting to play elias boot like that's where i went like all in um mm -hmm. and like read uh a book that was like based off of you know his uh his like his own poetry and his his background and his whole thing because I really want to embody him and as mm -hmm. much as I could and like obviously it's a complicated character because you know it was Cherokee around the time like just before the Trail of Tears also one of the signers of the uh Treaty of Nuachota <laughs> not exactly the most popular dude that ever existed to Cherokees um behind truly like the ridges but 
yeah, I just I I think that I just wanted to dive into him because I think it's important to humanize characters like that. Because mm-hmm. if you don't like, you, you, it's very easy to like portray anyone as a villain. Um, because you're like ah, mustache twirl and things like that, and like Ooh, I'm the evil. But you know, to me, that was an interesting exposure to that part of the story. Um, but anyways, like for me, it's it it was very exciting to get to play uh someone of my very specific background and whenever i come to uh another background i try to treat it like with as much respect as i possibly can and you know really just try to like bend the ear of the playwright about like what's you know um Mm -hmm. you know correct or not and then (laughs) it's interesting to see like the interesting like uh overlaps with like other cultures like because certain things can be completely different in like how Mm -hmm. they (laughs) treat things which is actually uh just fascinating but it was uh it's always it's always an honor and i also i love getting to learn like language for a show and things like that like i had to mm-hmm. learn Tlingit, and the first time mm-hmm. i learned like cherokee as an adult was for sovereignty because i had to mm-hmm. sing um amazing grace in cherokee which was mm-hmm. oh that was a wild experience um, how did, you do? did you do our ancestors proud Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> they, they didn't seem mad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at those reviews. <laughs> I am I am mentioned in very few of them, so I'm like I think I'm okay with this. <laughs> I came in, I did a thing. As long as nobody could like cut down my Oklahoma accent, I'm fine. <laughs> but that was that was wild. And also, one funny story from that whole situation is I had uh, a guy who. <laughs> who claimed to be a descendant of Elias Boudinot, like, come up to me after the show. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was Wait. really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for our viewers who don't know, Elias Boudinot did sign the relocation treaty, and upon um, upon arrival in what would be known as Cherokee Nation Indian Territory, he was assassinated. So, um, and he did have a wife, and uh, I believe he had children, but you know that's. Yeah, yeah I that's think it. I think in the lexic, <laughs> at least in the lore, uh, there was something that like the, the the wife and kids had escaped and like moved to California, which is also a very classic story when it comes to these things. Um, but in that moment, I was also just like, oh, I'm so honored that I could be representative of like, your ancestors. And then I thought about it at the bar. I was like, wait a minute. but also you like you get excited that somebody actually like knows who this person was you don't have to like sit there in the talk about explaining to them again right but yeah so that was that was really interesting i guess i hadn't thought about it really that much since then but like candace brings up a really good point that like oh that might be but also to me that's so specific though right right it's like too specific and also, like, nobody would be like, oh, that's my Cherokee ancestor. You know what I mean? Right. Not, yeah. Like, MK and Rebecca are the only, they're like the only, they're like the couple of Ridge descendants that I know of who are like, yes, we are Ridges. Like, I remember meeting them and I was shocked, you know, because I was like, oh my gosh, you all are Ridge descendants? And um, for our listeners, Ridges. Elias Boudinot and the Ridges, there, there are treaty, there are Cherokee Nation treaty signers. And so even today, there are people who still say that they are traitors, 
and that you know they were they were they were assassinated upon their arrival uh, yeah. to to this area to Oklahoma and so uh, to Indian Territory and Cherokee Nation. So uh, yeah, so I would I remember being shocked when I met Mary Catherine and Rebecca and being like, "Oh, the ridges! Wow, I've never met someone." one who claims that <laughs> number two like i've never met them here in, in <laughs> like i knew you all <laughs> your folks went away <laughs> your folks went away so you mentioned you had an oaky accent did you grow up in oklahoma i did not i um i grew up in santa fe new mexico um because that's where obviously my my dad's from uh Oklahoma uh grew up in Tahlequah and you know uh parts of like Collinsville and that area respectively and then my mom's family is actually from um was based mostly in uh, Los Angeles specifically like Hollywood area and things like that so uh they both at some point took a trip out to Santa Fe and did the classic like oh I want to move here it's so beautiful <laughs> so quaint and also like santa fe was like tiny when they moved there in the 90s like it's grown exponentially since i was even a child yeah um but yeah so i grew up in santa fe new mexico and you know went to uh, a very hippie granola private school um (laughs) uh, and of course like somehow was the only uh one of like two uh like kids of color in the class it was like me and uh, my Korean pal Elliot, who was also uh, mixed like myself, and it was like, "Hey, we're bonding. We don't understand why, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah." So then, um, but obviously, I also would like go out to Oklahoma and spend you know summers with my grandma. Thanksgiving was always a consistent holiday. We would also go out for Cherokee holiday uh, as much as we could, which at one point was like a yearly thing, which I was really always really grateful for. Um, so I tried to work on my Oklahoma, which is a weird, it's a weirdly subtle accent. Uh, I noticed because people like really try to like lean into the Southern of it when they think they're doing Oklahoma, but it's like, no, it, it creeps up on you in very weird spaces and things like that. Like you're just like, oh, wait, wait a minute you're southern aren't you Uh, ain't it so yeah it was it was fun getting to do uh an oklahoma thing and i'm also one of those annoying people who took like dialects and as soon as i'm around it i can't this is having a very physical reaction to this (laughs) (laughs) who who will start doing the accent when they're like when they're around it as much as possible yeah and and I remember actually hit, it hit me hard when I, I I was lucky enough to travel to Ireland with my folks. Oh no! And like I started like talking like a little bit of the Irish accent would just kind of like creep in there a bit, and I would like you know say like and um can we swear? Is that is that cool? Yeah. Yes. Cool. Cool. Because that was <laughs> I love the thumbs up across the board. Um, that's where I learned like for the Irish accent specifically the difference when it comes to the word fuck because they don't say fuck they say feck. It's like a, it's like an E sound. So it's like feckin is the more Irish sound of it. It was funny. It was like, I, I, <laughs> I was like walking around by myself and I would just start doing it. Like, cause I had been hearing it and just like talking to folks. So it's just like, are you, are, are you doing an accent to mess with me? Cause you don't <laughs> seem like you're from here. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was doing it. And then 
oh it, it also happened that one time when i was in london too like i just started doing the, <laughs> the british thing especially because i'll go cockney too that's a that's the thing is i'll just like get really really rough with it and <laughs> but yeah so it was funny and my point in telling that story is as soon as I'm in Oklahoma with my cousins and things like that, like I just start doing it more, like especially just listening to them. And it it's always weird because I feel at home, but I also never realize that I'm doing it. <laughs> and nobody corrects me because they're just like, oh, that sounds okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> so what other fun projects do you have coming up? Oh boy. Um, uh, at the moment I have basically trying to figure out uh because i i actually have gotten hooked up with a great agent uh and manager recently so i've been going out for a lot of really cool um film and tv projects so so far my year actually looks i'm i'm basically trying to cherry pick and figure out what my year is going to look like because i have an awesome offer to go understudy for between two knees again and had a callback for uh madeline sayette's play um her one person show and uh where we belong and there's potential that I might still be in the mix there. There's a couple of uh, TV pilots that I've been auditioning for that had, it's looking good. So I'm very optimistic, but I don't really have anything to say that like, I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm basically just trying to figure out uh, as every actor. Being an actor is weird because you constantly like living in limbo. Like you just don't know what you're going to be doing next. I wish I had a much more concrete answer, um, but I have like cool things. I have uh, some cool irons in, as my agent would put it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but at the moment, I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And then like everything falls through. I'm going to bartending school. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like living in L.A.? It sure is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's fun is that actually I think it took me about the 10 years I've been out here to finally acclimate to living out here mm. um yeah yeah I see Candace's reaction to that like <laughs> what's funny yeah I, I I actually really I I like it now um who it was wild living here during the pandemic though because you know it's like a city you know, like rife with life and activity and things like that. And then seeing it like a ghost town was absolutely wild. And, um, you know, I've lived in various parts of the city. Like I uh, I started in West Hollywood where um, I lived with my grandmother, uh, my mom's side, uh, which was really cool because that's like, that's, um, you know, the uh, strong, like uh, it's the strongest part of like the gay community and LGBTQ community out here. So that was really cool to be exposed to that. Halloween was always, that was the best hood to be for Halloween, the costumes. And then I lived over by uh, MacArthur Park for a couple mm. of years, which is a real, in real interesting area. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fun to hear like, oh, you know, they found a body in the fountain. Ooh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. neat, neat. Uh, it's good. To, and it was always good to know like, oh, so this is where the 18th Street gang is, is, uh, is predominant. Good to know who I'm repping. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah and then for the past i think like two four 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 or five years i've been living in the valley uh which is on the um other side of the hills mm -hmm. uh, which is like a very predominantly suburban area but i live in uh, north hollywood now which <laughs> when i i moved into my apartment that i'm still in right at right when the pandemic started too 
And I was super excited because like I'm right around the corner from a bunch of really cool bars and restaurants, like a barcade had just opened like a the the corner of my block is where the barcade is. And I was like, I'm in heaven. And then they're like, and we're shutting down. <laughs> <laughs> and no. <laughs> Remember all that fun you were going to have? Nah, we're not doing that. No. <laughs> <laughs> fun. Done. Get it out of here. <laughs> fun done. Fun done. <laughs> That's a good t-shirt. I like that. Fun yeah. done. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I think I really enjoy it because you do get exposed to like a lot of really cool culture and um, it's a really cool city, but obviously you just need like a certain income to experience really cool things. But then... But it it is a very cool city to to visit and like once you get your footholds like living and things like that. But it definitely took me a long time to acclimate because I never realized like growing up in Santa Fe, which is like famously, you know, a big little like a little big city, you know, and, you know, I never realized how much I actually was going to miss being so close to like nature and like that kind of silence and also like seeing stars the way that you do out there, mm -hmm. which is like so different compared to here with like the, especially the levels of light pollution and things like that. But all in all, I, 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 it's definitely home now, but it, for me, it took a while to get there for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, you know, when I was moving here, I was like, fuck you, Santa Fe, I'm out of here. And then I'm like, oh, I can't wait to go back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, one of my one of my friends lives in K Town, and she's like made a whole short about parking. Oh, just trying to find parking. <laughs> do oh, do not even get me started. <laughs> yeah, parking. Oh boy, you you learn how to parallel park real quick if that's mm -hmm, not yeah. in your if mm -hmm. that if that's not in your park, mm -hmm. if that's not in your skill set. You got it. You got to do it fast. Like, mm -hmm. and that's why I was so happy when I got the car that I have now because it's like a little Honda Fit, so it can fit. <laughs> that wasn't intentional. Hey. It can fit. <laughs> <laughs> it can fit a lot of places. Um, but yeah, so it, parking is just uh, you will dictate and how an entire night is going, whether you can find parking or not in that area. Like I have gone to things like, oh, we're all going to so and so's event over here in Hollywood. I'm like, cool. I've been looking for parking for two hours. I'm going home. Mm -hmm. Like I'm gonna go get a Jack in the Box munchie meal and cry myself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> As is tradition. <laughs> I'm curious about just uh, your agent. Can you talk about like the process of working with your agent for content? Is it how is that working out? Uh, it's it's working out pretty well. I mean, really, their whole uh, so. So for those who don't know, the difference between an agent and a manager is, is an, an agent essentially like pitches you to projects like, hey, here's my client. They would be great for this show. And then that really depends on if you're going to get an audition or not, which is really nice because if you don't have representation, um, you really have to do uh, what we call like self-submitting and things like that. It's just hard and like it's time consuming. Like it's not super hard, but you know, it's like putting yourself out there and uh, casting a wide net and trying to, you know, get what you get from that. And then uh, what a manager is, does is they can also they can also like send you auditions that they think you'll be good for and mm -hmm. things like that. But their whole basis is more about like managing your career, which is something that I've been kind of realizing and really real uh, understanding this past year. But um, yeah, my agent's great because uh, I think 
like in any business relationship, the the most important thing is like open communication and things like that. Uh, so it's been, I feel very adult, I guess is the way that I'm trying to put it. It's like I, feel, <laughs> I feel very professional, finally. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my uh, my agent is great. And uh, I actually have to do a self-tape uh, after this. <laughs> so how, how much advice and support has your family given you through all of this? And how much <laughs> did you listen to? <laughs> ah, oh boy yeah. my mom like obviously my dad has been in the industry a long time uh and but um i also like to share is that my mom also has a lot of experience because uh she uh, was also an actor and she's also more switched into writing but um her father uh was uh jack albertson who um for uh, those of you at home listening right now uh, have ever seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory was Grandpa Joe. And, you know, he had a whole career before film and TV because uh, he was also on Chico on the Man, which was a very popular show. Um, <clears throat> but he also was like on Broadway with The Subject Was Roses and had a whole vaudeville career before that. Uh, his first film actually was uh, he was the mailman in uh, Miracle on 34th Street. My mom was always very supportive and thought that I was, you're so talented. Uh, not that she sounds like that. I just like to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she was always very supportive. And I think, and my dad, he was supportive, but I think he also, <laughs> also always had that air of like, you sure, you sure you want to do this? In, so, in many ways, he's like very much like a working actor, right? Which is, you know, and he's very, uh, he, he is famous on like a certain scale of things too. He unfortunately isn't like, you know, like a George Clooney or something like that, who's like, just like, at certain points in careers, like turning a bunch of stuff out, which he definitely was at one point. The interesting thing was, I think he was always very conscious of like the hardships that come with it. Yeah, they they basically, the most advice that they give me is really just, you just got to plug away. Like, that's, and that's really true, I think, with any, um, doing any thing in the entertainment industry like it goes for writing it goes for directing um it really goes for anything that you want to do because like a huge part of it is the hustle and just like like being yourself and being someone that you that people would want to work with um so like they, strangely their advice has always just been kind of like you just gotta you just gotta do it <clears throat> you know for me it was always hard not to compare my journey to my father's you know because like he kind of had this thing where he moved out here with just him and a bunch of buddies who were just going to go be Hollywood Indians, you know, mm -hmm. and they all moved out here together. And then like his first TV thing was actually like the, uh, the flash show from the late eighties, early nineties mm -hmm. mm -hmm. where yeah. he was just a dice roller. Like he was just like <laughs> a thug in the street. <laughs> and, you know, after that, like just started like, really taking off and like i i personally like to compare him to like samuel l jackson because like he came to it like much older and things like that mm -hmm. um <clears throat> but a difficulty for me and they've always been like very supportive about this every actor's journey is going to be like diametrically different because there's no one answer there's you know there's always going to be things that you think you're really good for and that just don't get or you just don't get in the room for certain things mm -hmm. um but yeah their their support has always been just just so intensely valuable and i truthfully would not be able to do what i do without them and like the support of a lot of friends and things like that so they've always been great about this kind of stuff but i think it's also because i grew up around it the nice thing is they've always had advice that is just very direct 
you know, like there's no reason to sugarcoating how difficult it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, to, you know, be bummed <clears throat> out, but also don't take things. I think the most important thing that my dad actually told me was like, you can't take auditions personally. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause mm-hmm. there's nothing, there's nothing personal about it. You're just, mm-hmm. you can go in, do your best, which you should always do. Like if they, if they don't choose you, it's not because they didn't, it's not always because they didn't like your work. It's just, you might just not be right. Mm-hmm. You might not be what they're looking for. And that was, mm-hmm. I think the most um, valuable thing they ever uh, taught me about that because it's hard because obviously acting and really any art form um, it's hard not to take it personally because you are just laying yourself out there that's that's just what it is and that's the the risk you got to take but they've always been intensely supportive and have always been truly the best throughout the whole the whole thing so that's advice from your parents to you I'm curious if you have different advice for other people create your own content for sure mm-hmm because you never know where that's going to lead like because that's also that's literally what like the 1491s did like they just went and filmed these <laughs> sketches and then eventually you know after Sterling Harjo like moved out here he you know he got like hooked up with like him and Taika Waititi have like known each other for years mm-hmm. I guess the thing the advice that I would give is like <clears throat> and it's also tricky um, but the most important thing is finding your community and the people that you vibe with artistically yeah i think my advice just goes along with the same thing it's just like you just got to plug away like if you really want to do this and you and you love doing it just remember that like it's going to be hard but when you get to do it man, there's no better feeling in the world like there's no better feeling when you get to work on something that you care about and you also may have to work on stuff that you don't you don't give a shit about (laughs) like you just gotta always put your best foot forward and i think the thing that i've also been i've unfortunately learned very recently because you know the thing about going to acting school specifically is like they they always feel like you have to fit in a box right there's always this this i think really myth about like typecasting about what you have to be and what you have to present mm-hmm. um when the reality is is like you really just have to be yourself in this character which sounds like two different things but in reality isn't mm-hmm. because there's no no one's going to do this character the way that you would do it and mm-hmm. as soon as like you copy someone else it's false so i think my advice would just be be yourself do the work for the character do all the stuff that's necessary like understanding their circumstances what makes you different from them what would bring if you were this person what are the the stepping stones that would and i know i'm speaking specifically to acting but what are the things that would would bring you to be this person if you were them like what are the steps we like is there an event that would have pushed you a direction to become a cop or be a lawyer or be a scientist or like if you were drawn to something that way but at the end of the day you have to be selling you because that's what that's what it is i think unfortunately chris pratt is actually a really good example of this terrible casting for mario but (laughs) but like he just like you know went out and like did andy dwyer right which is just like this goofy dude and then in the same vein he's just being himself as star lord yeah like at his core it's this goofy dude who takes himself too seriously but at the core it's just him and that's like what george clooney all of these a, a lot of people have just always done and then and i think the beauty of it is like finally now like native artists and native actors can finally be doing these things like mm-hmm. actually one of my favorite things that my dad has done recently is bucky on reservation dogs yeah. mm-hmm. because he's just that <laughs> 
goofy weirdo that I grew up with. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I think the best advice I can give about that is just don't forget to be you and don't forget to water your own garden and grow as a person. Because pretending to be other people will never get you there. Do you want to talk about one of your favorites? And why it's your favorite of of your dad's? Oh, for sure. I've also, (laughs) it's wild that the, uh, oh, I feel like we talked about me far too much. (laughs) You're on. Uh, Because this whole thing, this whole thing was also going to be about like legacy and things like that. But um, for me, and actually because I just rewatched it last night, uh, is Mystery Men. Um, Oh, yes. Because the movie itself is so whacked out. like It's mm-hmm. such a crazy, silly movie. And it was one of the first times my dad got to just do comedy. And he just does it so, mm-hmm. so, 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 so well. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I always, and like, even as a kid, I remember watching that and just like, I, it drives me crazy to know, like how undervalued he was in that respect, mm-hmm. you know? That like he would always and it, and that's also more of a testament to like typecasting that he would always go out for like you know the intense you know mm-hmm. like native like he was either like a chief or like you know the sheriff which he's all good at like he's good at all of these things but like I it just it it truly just pains me to know that like people most of the population never got to see him at his funniest which luckily has changed and mystery men i think is and also to a certain extent like uh like powwow highway as well mm-hmm. um like he's he's <laughs> just he just just you'd be like you'd be that like goofy dude you know mm-hmm. i think that's why it's one of my favorites also it was one of the only movies i ever got to watch him in as a kid because i never got to see deep rising as a kid which also <laughs> oh, oh. That's a close second because, man, there's a thing in that movie that I will always have deep respect for, like as far as like a as like a villain last moment call. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's so good. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's just like, like yeah, wow, it's that's so who that's who that dude was. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah. He gives him. Oh, anyways, I don't want to spoil it, <laughs> but anyways, I just thought it was one of the first times I got to see him as a as a kid, like play something that wasn't inherently like uh a native character which i think is so important yeah it just kind of goes back to like letting indigenous folks like tell their story and also be part of the stories that like they don't have to be defined by culture you know because it's important that Mm -hmm. you know we tell our stories and have it be a part of that but it also isn't all of us that movie is just kind of the quintessential thing because it's very, it's very silly. <laughs> and it, it's a superhero movie before superhero movies were huge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially like a collective one. Like that was very cool. Oh yeah. Well, also yeah. you think about that cast too. Like it's insane. Mm-hmm. You got William yeah. H. You got William H. Macy. Yeah. You got Ben Stiller. <laughs> yeah. Baby Stiller. Jane Garofalo. <laughs> Jane Garofalo, who's, mm-hmm. who's the scene stealer in every like moment that she's in there. Like absolutely. <laughs> watch a whole movie about her. And you know you got Paul Rubens, aka Pee Wee Herman, mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. before the it's one of my yeah, favorites. That's uh, so good. And you got Kel Mitchell too, <laughs> like just a baby Kel. Yeah. And Jeffrey Rush is in that movie. Greg Kinnear yeah, is in that. Yeah, movie. Greg oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wild. Also, uh, just fun, like fun tidbit. Michael Bay's in that movie too. Oh. 
he's acting in that movie. Yeah, he's he's part of the the frat boy gang. He actually oh has a line. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. It was so wild, and I was like, "Nah, you're casted correctly." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm curious though. Like, what's it? What else, does everyone else here have a favorite? Like, because I I'd love to hear just real quickly because I know we're running quite long. <laughs> I I have a West story. Ooh, I'm in. Story. <laughs> story. Let's go. Yeah, he was out in Visai shooting well, whatever that little indie short or indie feature was. And it was the time that I think it was H1N1 mm-hmm. was going around. And so the Cherokee Nation shot a PSA about how to prevent the spread of H1N1. And, you know, he just he just kind of snuck on set he you know we turned around and he was like oh he's just right there and oh okay but after <laughs> after we wrapped he stopped and signed autographs and took pictures and was just very gracious to everybody even the nursing home residents and it was just really cool it was a really cool experience i love that you described it as he snuck on set because that's so accurate He's he's such a low key guy too. Like he he is very grateful when these things you know um, when people like want to ask him things and like just talk to him and get an autograph. Um, but he's so not that dude. <clears throat> like he's so not the guy who likes to be in the limelight, which is so ironic. I love yeah. that. I also love that he flexed that he did the whole thing in English and it was like also doing yep. Cherokee. And it's like right, yeah, yeah, all uh-huh. right. <laughs> but it was very right. impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I was, I think the. Of course, growing up, I knew who he was. And of course, I think you know that your dad and my dad, they got their start back during, uh, I think they both got, they both were acting together at the Trail of Tears drama in in Park Hill, Tahlequah area. And they were doing this in the 70s. What's funny is uh, my, sorry, little, little sidebar is that doing some of the research I'm doing now at my desk job is that I occasionally will come across old pictures of your dad in like our archives and special collections of him like either doing something on stage or in like a, a doing a, a commercial for like reading books you know or it's like a poster for like read read this book month you know kind of a thing but my story whenever I actually met him like just just for like a little bit for the first time I was I was in college I was backstage uh, during a show and we were sharing a backstage area with a touring show. And I don't know the name of the touring show. I, I didn't know anything about it. I was just in college. I was just trying to get through my show. You know, I wasn't really worried about the show next door. But I, Wes Studi came through the backstage door. And I just remember being like, and I'm like looking at my, and I'm also the only native person in my theater program. And I just turned around and I was just like, everybody. <laughs> he just walked through here and he just walked through you know just, and i wasn't gonna i was too i was i i was being too weird to approach him or speak in any way you know it was it was it was weird and of course being the only native person all my college people were like who's that and he just he had just done avatar <laughs> he had just done avatar oh. <laughs> you know and i was just like you all don't even know. He mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I like, never mind. Y'all are lost causes. Never mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> never mind. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, so mad. Simon and so mad. <laughs> no one else got it. I couldn't uh, share that moment with anybody. 
<laughs> but I'm sure you know that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this related thing, like ten years later. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so it's so good. I also love that 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 story was accurate. Like he just did Avatar, which everyone should recognize him in. <laughs> like, just did avatar and like oh what part and i'm like the big blue one the big blue big guy one. he was leader of the of the cat smurfs how could you forget <laughs> oh man i you know what what you know what's really funny it just as a quick aside like the amount of people who have asked me like hey is your dad gonna be the new avatar i'm like he didn't watch the movie then. He died. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Sorry, spoilers for the 2010 classic Avatar. But I have to say one of my personal favorite, of course, I love your I love your dad's comedy, of course, because um, he does kind of remind me of my dad. My dad has gotten mistaken for your dad sometimes. <laughs> Ooh, I love that. Interesting. Yeah, my dad's like, what? <laughs> he was like, what? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. You know, he's always like, well, thank you very much. But of course, oh, one of my personal favorites, aside from his comedic roles, is uh, just ah, the masterpiece that is Penny Dreadful. I love the dialogue. Mm. I love his character, and of course, he's he's playing a medicine man in in this in this world, and he's he's so different, you know, in many ways. That's so oh, because because I agree with that too. That was one of my favorite things because like his entrance in that show is wild. Like uh-huh. he goes, I think he, like, I think he takes out two vampires when he enters. Like it's like, yeah, immediately just like, oh, here comes the badass. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. And you're right. Oh man, I haven't, I haven't. Oh, I might have to rewatch that again. But yeah, he's really just there to be like, hey, you Victorian nut jobs. Here's what's really happening. We're all gonna die. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the end of the world. Like I think he talks about that. You know, like. The interesting thing about his character there is like that was I think they weren't even sure they were going to get a third season and then they got it and then the creators were just like you know what let's just bring this home because you know Josh Hartnett's character is obviously like an American and they really I thought it was really clever how they tied that whole scenario into the show as well. It was nice because it wasn't preachy. Yeah. (laughs) It was just brutal and part of that world and but while also being very honest about the whole thing yes so oh yeah i'm dang it now i'm gonna have to go back and watch watch that i might just watch the third (laughs) season again a little timothy dalton story because i know big wigs i don't know anybody i'm very (laughs) lucky to have met people um but yeah uh i was lucky to go uh to dublin to hang out with my folks uh while my dad was shooting penny dreadful and one day i went on set with him and it was basically a day where they were just filming a lot of like B-roll of like them walking out of smoky alleyways and things like that. So it's like <laughs> December and it's pouring rain. And uh, my dad's nice enough to like introduce me to Timothy Dalton, who's a really, he was, he was just like a really, he was very nice to me. And like, we chatted real quick and it was definitely between like setups and things like that. You know, I'm just kind of standing around getting dirty looks from all the uh, grips and gaffers because I'm dressed like a civilian. So they're just like, why are you standing around? Why are you, why aren't you doing anything? And I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm not, I'm just, I'm just a mooch. I'm just here to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just hanging out. <laughs> I'm West Studios kid. I'm sorry. But so like I, I look to my left and I see uh Timothy Dalton kind of like 
getting a little antsy, you know, a little hangry because they I think they were like a an hour, like a half hour past when they were supposed to like stop for lunch and things like that. And he was like, All right, well, when are we gonna do this? like are we is this what we're doing? All right, fine. So he walks off. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then the next time I see him, and and mind you, the surroundings is like they were shooting this in like an old uh uh what what what's it called where like uh nuns stay uh a convent, a convent. Mm-hmm. thank you but like yeah so they were filming this in like an old convent and you know because it's just like basically this huge courtyard surrounded by buildings and i'm just standing around and then i look to my left and i just see timothy dalton staring into space eating a burrito just like <laughs> like it's everything he needs in that moment i'm just like nah i get it <laughs> the stars they're just like you and me <laughs> <laughs> yeah a burrito in dublin being eaten in by a james bond you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> that's the name of this episode <laughs> <laughs> burritos and bonds <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't I don't really have a West story. I mean, I, I probably uh, missed a West story when I was like at a native crossroads and I had to go prep something and he was there with Ronnie Bodine and I saw him on stage very briefly while I had to go traipse offward to do some sort of planning. Um, so I missed some sort of story there. I've never met him. Well, I'm, you know, I wish that I can at some point. That'd be amazing. But I think, uh, you know, like he's got an amazing filmography uh he is a badass like this deep rising it's really incredible how long he lasts as a character in that film and you really feel his presence and heat i wish he had just like a stronger uh, you know uh but you really feel it and he's funny he's great he's very dramatic Uh, like hostels i think is really one of the strongest ones because he's in it and it, it also you know underutilized in that film but there's this one film called badland one word, bad land. And it's just like this small indie Western. And it's basically just sort of like this bounty hunter hunting down people in the West. What's his name is in it? Uh, Bruce Dern is in it. He's got like this really long sort of like moment of a dying man asking for his own control over death. And then the bounty hunter can take him. Anyway, it's, you know, it's like indie Western of people talking in rooms, basically. But, um, your dad's in this film and he plays like one of these like competing antagonists and there it's like about bounty hunter at the end of his days. And I really sense that it's just sort of like individual that has so much life and just so many stories and doesn't have to be antagonistic. Doesn't have to be buddies. Doesn't have to be, a wise man doesn't have to be mystical. It's just this guy who's to some degree like maybe exhausted, but is going to do what he can with the rest of his life. And there, there are so many layers there that I just described and it's all there. And it's like, you know, very few scenes as usual, unfortunately, but like he really raises the the bar and like nobody gives a performance like him in that film. And it's just like everything he's doing is just so effortless. Like there's like this simple prop work with this like uh, small jar, like the what he's doing with his wardrobe, his like demeanor. And like it's like almost 
so confident and and just well practiced as a performer and it just you just believe it because it, because it, it i mean it just seems like he's just brought so much to that one particular moment and i just it's an amazing portrait of this human it just all the things he's doing just moment by moment he's like constantly doing something and it really makes you know that it makes that film just like level up in so many ways if you haven't seen it i mean it's not you know the film is not all that great total in the end um but it's great for the scene that he's in it's really amazing like a deep cut answer yeah that's yeah that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean you know it's an amazing performance i want people to see it you know uh and i feel like people don't i don't i don't even know when that film was released i don't know if it was released theatrically or if it was only went to streaming or disc and you know people need to see it because it's like that's top studio there I also love that you mentioned like the the inkling of Roddy Bodine, which is another favorite that my dad did. Oh, yeah, weird little, <laughs> oh, yeah. little short film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so good. Like that needs to be its own feature. <laughs> I think. Uh, how do we? How do we? I I, I guess uh, Stephen Paul Judd would have to be like. Uh, all right, you want to use Ronnie Bodine for like uh, uh, a Reservation Dogs episode, real mm-hmm, quick, mm-hmm, right? Yeah, <laughs> and then, right. And, then, and do some green screen for fucking right, Ronnie yeah, Bodine. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Mm-hmm. I'd love. Yeah, Twins that's... separated at birth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was so good. Um, but real quick. <laughs> Just because I, I wanted to bring it back to the, the Reservation Dogs thing, I think one of the greatest things I've ever seen in TV was the argument between uh, him and my dad and Gary Farmer at, mm-hmm. at oh like, gosh, yeah. the, the, the prayer argument. Yeah, the prayer is <laughs> I, I just showed that to to the, the person that I'm, I'm dating like last night, and we were both just laughing because it's so brilliant. And it's, it's so, so subtle because <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> They're just hatching out this like age long beef <laughs> right. in the middle of ceremony. And right, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> and we've all been there. We've all seen it. We've yeah. all heard it. Where they do that shaming, that shaming, <laughs> the shaming and one upping. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm gonna carry ceremonial shaming with me the rest of my life. That's so good. <laughs> Because I just like, because the thing is, I just want to say, I um, when Candace asked me to do this, I immediately just started like binging episodes, and I was like, oh, this is all I want in a podcast. <laughs> so like, I just want to want to say thank you so much for having me. It was just, it's just an honor to get to to do stuff like this and just talk. Well, it's thank rough. you so much. Oh, I want to thank you so much too, Cole, for coming on. And I really hope that we are like, we like the podcast that you're on before you like take off. <laughs> or, you know, we like, knew him when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I know you're already you're already hitting that pavement, man, and you're already like you're already doing some really great things. So I wish you all and all of those things. And uh, yeah, you keep plugging away. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, don't just keep it real. Keep it it real real indigenous. indigenous. (laughs) Nailed it.